Well, this morning, what I want to talk about is comparing views of the atonement. And before we, we dive into that, let's open our, our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the end of the, near the end of the first great discourse in the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew writes of, and it's connected to the, um, oops, it's connected to the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> so here our Lord Jesus is speaking in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, and he tells the crowd, he tells his listeners, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We'll be revisiting that verse in a bit. But first, as we start off, who can give us a working definition of what atonement means? In plain, just in plain English, doesn't have to be in fancy theological terms. Michelle. Um, the removal of the sin of the person that has transgressed against God. Yes, very good. So... The word atonement, we break it down, we see that it says at one meant, which is exactly what Michelle's talking about. It's, it's um, the action that, that God has decreed that he, in his triune form, will perform in order to make his people once again one with him. So remember um, the, that, that Hebrew word for atonement that underlies the term atonement in um, Hector. You have a question or, or a comment? I was going to say that it's been a while, but I, I was going to say one was God. Right. Yeah, so, so Hector recalls this. Um, and many of us learned it when we were very young, right? That, I mean, it's an easy way... Uh, to remember it. Um, so the Hebrew, kafar, uh, which is translated uh, atonement in the Old Testament, means to cover over or smear with pitch, right? And so what's being covered over? What's being smeared with, with the pitch of God here? What's that? Sins, yes, absolutely right. Interestingly, 
You probably recall in the story of Noah how when he built the ark, what, what did God tell him to do on the outside and the inside? Smear it with pitch, right? And the ark was a vessel of rescue, right, from a sinful world that was going to face God's judgment. So you see that, that connection there. Then when we move into the, the New Testament, um, there's another word that, that our English Bibles use that, that is um, maybe a little bit more difficult to remember because there's not a nice, easy breakdown, but propitiation, right? <clears throat> or hilasteron in, in the Greek. So comparing views of atonement. So now we know, we, we recall now that we're dealing with the ways in which God um, handles our sins, so to speak, so that we may be in relationship with him. And, and, and there's different ideas on that. <clears throat> so, to, so we, as we've, as we've discussed, and we know by now, we hold to a, a particular redemption also called limited atonement. So you can take your pick. There's, a, there's, other, there's, there's other terms for this doctrine. You can take your pick, whatever you know, is, you're more comfortable with, whichever sounds better. They, they mean the same thing. So in today's world, in, in modern Christianity, this view... Limited atonement, particular redemption. Would you say that that is the majority view of most Christians or the minority view of most Christians? Minority, right? Yeah. Um, so, but that's not always been the case. Why do you think it's the case now? Why do you think, so the majority of Christians reject limited atonement? Any ideas? And there's no right or wrong answer when it comes to this. It's just based on what you think and what you've observed. Marie's got an answer. One of the reasons is the music and the songs and the lyrics of the words all uh, lean to that. And are you speaking of like um, the Christian music or music in general? Yeah, the Christian music. Okay. And the words that, that are to that. Okay. To, to that set of music. Okay. Any other thoughts? Doug? It's very offensive. How so? How dare God allow some people to go to heaven and send the rest to hell? That's not fair. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very good. Irene, what was that? Idolatry. Idolatry. In, in, in what way would you say? They make their own God. They don't, they don't know the real God. Yeah. They're, those, those are all very true answers. Anybody else want to chime in? <clears throat> Araceli. Because we want to, or the majority of humans want to be able to uh, determine whether we're um, saved or not and not leave it up to God. We want to be in control. Right. 
Yeah, control, I think, is a very big um, p- part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, Pastor Steve. Yeah, the, because of the predominant view that God is trying to save everyone. Yes. And we're going to be speaking, well, we've been speaking of that. We're going to continue to speak of that. You know, is, is that idea true or is, is it not? So, what is the, what, who can tell us what the memory device that, that Calvinists or Reformed Christians often use? What's the, the acrostic? Marie is like, you ever watch Jeopardy and there's that person that as soon as the host starts to read, they hit the buzzer. It's like, yes, very good. Tula. <laughs> That's when you know you're dealing with someone that knows their stuff. Tula, which T stands for total depravity. Now by that, do we mean that people are just as mean and nasty and evil as they could possibly be? No, No, that's not what we mean. We're talking about salvation here, right? We're talking about... Do, that we don't have the ability to save ourselves. We are, we are totally depraved in that sense. What's the you? Unconditional elections. And what does that mean? Unconditional. Thank you. I'm writing that and I'm thinking, why does that not look right? (laughs) Writing on a whiteboard, thinking and talking can be difficult. I'm sorry, what was that Michelle says? Right. It's God's decision, as Michelle says, as Linda says. It's not, not anything that we do. Okay, L, that should be easy because we're dealing with that right now. Limited atonement. And I'm not going to ask for a working definition because we are working on defining this. And then we haven't got to the other two, so this is like an advanced question, and I'm not going to quiz you on what they are, but who can tell me what I is? Irresistible grace. And the P. Perseverance of the saints. Very good. These doctrines came about in response to a theologian's students. Can, who knows, who remembers who this theologian is? Calvin. 
Arminius, yes, Jacob Arminius. <laughs> That's an easy mistake, because we're dealing with Calvin so much. But. And where did, this, where did this take place? Where, where, what government did these students of Jacob Arminius, what government did they petition to change the um, doctrines of the state church? Anyone remember? It took, yes, the Synod of Dort was a gathering, and Dort is where? In Dortland, right? No. I think someone said, Linda, what did you say? In the Netherlands, exactly right. Okay, this is a tough one. When did this take place? 1618. Someone say 1618? Who, who said? Ah, very good. I'm hearing that and I'm looking here. I didn't, I'm not looking back there at Brendan sitting against the wall. I'm like, there's a ventriloquist here. They're giving me the answer and their mouths aren't moving. That's really something. I'm looking for the puppet and I'm not seeing it. Okay. <clears throat> so the opposing view to particular redemption, what we're learning and what our confession holds to, is what the students of Arminius brought forward and thus, and thus they're known as Arminians just as we are known as Calvinists. So neither is, like I've said, neither is a disparaging term. We should not use these terms as such, no matter what other people do. It's just a way to describe, you know, um, two, two different theological views within the Orthodox Christian church that are connected primarily to salvation or soteriology. How, how God saves us. So they, in essence, they believe in maybe what we, we could call general redemption. That's like the opposing view. And this is what people of many different Christian denominations believe in, in general redemption. But I think that they, most people even go further than this. Um, they, they believe that um, Jesus died for all men and women, regardless, regardless of what the confessions or statements of their denomination may say. There are, as, as you probably know, there are, there are Christian denominations that have been around for centuries that once held closely to these doctrines that have turned from them. And even though they have not changed their confessions of faith, they don't believe that, and they, and they don't teach it within their churches. In fact, they reject it. <clears throat> so these people that are uh, espousing this idea of general redemption, um, they think the only thing that, that keeps all people from the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross is their unbelief, the the person's unbelief or lack of faith. So that idea stands in contrast with what we're talking about, limited atonement or particular redemption in Reformed theology, which, what, affirms that Jesus died for every single person? No. That Jesus died for whom? So Jesus died for 
the elect, right? People that were chosen before the world was created as God's people. That we are, are, are their elect, we are elected if we are in that group, so to speak. <clears throat> so these select number of people, <clears throat> those are whom the Father specifically had given to the Son. Jesus died specifically for those people. And the atonement accomplished by the Holy Spirit for these people's salvation is limited to those people. That's the idea, as we've talked about, of limited atonement. It's not that Jesus cannot save whom he wants to save. He is not limited in his power. He's limited in another way that we're going to talk about. So, we've got these distinctions here between the Reformed and the Arminians. Important to know. We should understand them. But we also have areas of agreement between us who are Reformed and the our Arminian brothers and sisters, which I think it's important that we recognize this, where we come together. I am not in any way suggesting that our doctrines are of such little importance that we should just you know, meet together, kumbaya, and not even discuss differences or hold to our differences. But I think it's important that we do see commonality. That in, the, in that sense, then we can be um, we can be gracious, you know, to other believers and realize that we do have things in common. And when we have things in common when we can relate to people and we, we, we care for them, that, op- that opens up an opportunity for us to discuss the specifics of Reformed theology and maybe clear away any um, misconceptions that people have. And there are many misconceptions about Reformed theology out there. Undoubtedly, you've, um, you've encountered some um, I've encountered some, even in very learned scholarly men who hold professorships in various universities um, that are confessing Christians. But when they speak of Reformed theology, uh, they, they're out of their wheelhouse. They, they don't know what they're speaking of, and they're speaking in, in ways that are um, misconceptions, generalizations and misconceptions. So... <clears throat> What do we agree, where, where, are, where are areas of agreement? Number one, we agree on the value of Jesus' atonement. We all agree that this is a This is a big deal. This is a great thing. This is a wonderful thing. 
and we agree that Jesus' sacrificial, sacrificial death is necessary for salvation. That's the value of it. Now, obviously, there are those who have made their camp in the Christian community and, and, and identify themselves as Christians that have views that are going to vary from what I'm talking about. But these, these people are not what we would call orthodox Christians. They are not holding to the, the traditional faith of Christianity that uh, goes all the way back to the time of the apostles in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Number two, we agree that there are benefits of the death of Jesus Christ for all people short of salvation. So let's think about this. What, what would you say are the benefits for all people by Jesus' sacrificial death short of salvation? What might that include? What, what, do you, what comes to mind when I mention that, if anything? Caleb. Of society and culture, like we all sing various Christmas songs, and people want to say, Oh, it's the holidays, but we all know what holiday we're talking about. Um, so, a lot of things have changed in our world because of Christianity. Very good. Caleb gives us the idea of the transformation of culture. Very true. Very important. Brendan, you had your hand up. Well, the, the very breath we have, you know, as we spoke of yesterday in our fellowship, I mean, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the sunshine. God gives physical life and sustenance, sustenance to all. Michelle. Um, he is an example of a life well lived and people emulate that try to anyhow yes yes that's very good i'm sorry i didn't catch the last so michelle offers the fact that um, the life of jesus serves as an example to all people uh, a moral example to all people, even those people that do not accept his deity or look upon him as savior. And I think 
That's very true, isn't it? We think about it. We think about the arguments that, that people who do not accept Orthodox Christianity, when they speak of Jesus, they invariably will admit that he was a very good man and that he was a good moral example, but they draw the line there. They don't want to go any further. So obviously, obviously there's much truth in that. He's a moral example. Very. You know how they say that they they see him as, as he's up there. He's like a you know the, the, what his work that he did isn't that kind of like the lukewarm type of thing. So he spits you out of his mouth, and so the way that Jesus would perceive it would be actually super very negative. Is that? Is he around with that? <laughs> yes, I would say that that that's very true. So so um, Barry's uh, question is to just look upon Jesus as a good moral teacher, isn't that like what um, uh, Jesus says in the Gospels, that um, uh, be, be for me or against me? You have to be one or the other. You have, to, you have to accept and believe what he says about who he is. Otherwise, you're against him. Even if you compliment him, you know, um, say something nice about him, about being a good moral teacher. You, you're, you're denying the essence of who Jesus claims his, his identity to be. Uh, Barry pointed out um, a very good um, passage, you know, that, um, uh, where the Lord said, be, you know, when he's speaking to um, the churches in the beginning of Revelation, and he had John write letters to them, that he said, you know, you're lukewarm. Don't be lukewarm. I, it just makes me want to you know, it's not good. It makes me want to gag and spit you out of my mouth. Be hot or be cold. Be, be burning with passion in your faith or just go do something else. Don't try and straddle that fence. It's like, that's what I believe it's James refers to that type of person as a double-minded person, right? Thinking about the world and then thinking about, you know, the Lord and how to do both. So these are all very good um, examples of what uh, we're talking about, about these benefits. So these all might fall under the, I think they do, fall under the term, something that we call common grace. Now, Paul in his missionary journeys, at one time he goes to Athens, right? The, um, what we know as the capital of Greece, which in, in, that, in this day and age, uh, when, when Paul, it wasn't, you know, Greece was not a nation, Athens was a mighty city-state. It was, it was basically like a country in and of itself. So he goes there, and he goes to this place that uh, uh, Areopagus, or translated Mars Hill, and so Paul tells the Greeks something, the, the Greek philosophers there, and it's in Acts 17.30. In Acts 17.30, Paul says something important. 
Imagine that. Paul said something important. 1730, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul's speaking to these Greek philosophers, and he says this, gives them this statement. The times of ignorance God overlooked. What times is Paul referring to here, do you think? That's, a, that's kind of a tough one, huh? All the time before Christ's death. Yes, yes. So... Um, ignorance of what? Ignorance of the salvation of God, right? Ignorance of the Savior, the Messiah. That's, that's what he's focusing in on here. Um, turn a couple chapters back to Acts 14. Acts 14, 16. Acts 14, 16. Paul says here, in past generations, he, almighty God, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So, there's a turning point. Like Linda pointed out, the turning point is Christ, is the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, Times of ignorance are over, and the times when God allowed all the nations. Now, when the Bible speaks of the nations, who in general is the Bible speaking about? The Gentiles. Yes, Linda said the Gentiles. So, um, God gave the divine oracles, the word of God, he gave it to the Jews, right? His chosen people. They weren't given to all of the nations. The nations were, were lost in sin and depravity and worship of false gods. Now the time has changed. Now all nations are to walk in the light. So common grace really is God's, un, I would say, is God's unmerited favor towards all people, the elect and the reprobate, right? The, the, the wicked, those who are, who are lost in their sins and will continue in that manner until their death. And in this common grace, um, God restrains sin so that order is maintained and civic righteousness is promoted. <laughs> kind of hard to talk about civic righteousness in this day and age, isn't it? But we, but we have it. Look at the vast majority of people, and I learned this, and, you know, three plus decades as a police officer, even though I thought every, most people I came into contact with were bad guys, they were criminals, they were lawbreakers, they were scoundrels. But most of the people out there are good people in the human sense, right? So we still have that going on. And, and, and the civic righteousness is, is important. God gives to all of us, regardless of whether we're saved or unsaved, the sun, the rain, harvest, gladness of heart, and other blessings which seem good to him, to God, to give. It's God's decision um, in this, just like our salvation. Common grace might also be thought of as what is needed for even the reprobate, even the wicked, to accomplish 
the things that God has decreed that they will accomplish in order to further his will. Even those who deny him are under his decree and are used towards that end. So this idea that Paul's talking about, about former times and, and, and ignorance, um, this holds true in the present also. Judgment is delayed while the gospel is preached throughout the world. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 9, referred to when he observed this. This is what he's referring to, what I just said. The Lord is not slow to, fulfill, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, so that's an example of a text that the Arminians would use as a proof text. In, in other words, a text they would point to and say, um, listen, brother, sister, Calvinist, um, your idea of limited atonement cannot be correct, because look at this. Um, God wishes that all would, would reach repentance, that, they, that they, he doesn't want anyone to perish. There are many other verses like this. We're going to devote... Um, uh, some time later in our lecture series looking at what we might call these problem texts. What do these texts say? How should we interpret them so we understand our doctrines and, and make the Bible, make God's word cohesive? It, it, it matches. God's word is not contradictory, contrary to what atheists may tell you. So it must be cohesive and make sense uh, to us. <clears throat> so we talked about the common benefits of Christ's life and death to all mankind. Okay, need a little bit more room here. So there's a third area of agreement that we want to talk about. Yep, got enough time. Okay, the third area of agreement. We, Reformed and Arminians, agree that not all people will be saved. Nearly all evangelical Christians, whether Reformed or Arminian in their, in their concept of salvation, are united in the confession based on God's word that not all people will be saved. Now, of course, there are people um, within various denominations that have... Uh, an unorthodox or what we would call a heterodox view that would claim that all people are saved regardless. We've, we've probably all encountered you know, people um, like that. So, um, but that is, not, that is not the traditional Christian view at any point in history. Although there were men that were influential in the early church 
um, really in the, in the time of what we call the patristic fathers. That's the time after the apostles had died, and then their disciples and their disciples' disciples were the patristic fathers. There were some guys that had some, some crazy views, um, uh, but they're still, they're, at that time, the church is trying to work out this theology, right? And, and the funny thing, well, not funny, haha, but kind of odd when you think about it, is that many of these patristic fathers, these men with these um, unorthodox views, came from the eastern part of the church. So um, that's really kind of continued on today. The eastern churches have, have uh, what we would consider to be very odd views on, on, on many things. So <clears throat> we also agree... Not only the fact that not all people will be saved, but that hell is a real place. This is, this is a, an orthodox doctrine of all Christians and always has been. And not only is it a real place, but there are people who will be in it. That people will be sentenced to hell, will be sent to hell for all eternity. <clears throat> now, there was this very interesting early church father in the patristic era, Athanasius of Alexandria. Perhaps you've heard of him. I know we've spoken of him in the past. Here's a bonus question. Who can tell us the nickname that Athanasius was given during his life by his enemies, which were many? Anybody? It's such a cool name. It sounds like a Marvel superhero. They called him the Black Dwarf. I mean, you need a cape with that, right? He was from Egypt, apparently dark complexion and very, very short, but mighty, mighty in spirit, mighty in conviction. What is a, there's a phrase also associated with Athanasius, the Black Dwarf, that you, you, you may not, Brendan's hand shot right up. Athanasius against the world. Now, now I'm thinking of Athanasius as a wrestler, right? If you guys are old enough, you remember Freddie Blassie, the wrestler. Freddie Blassie versus the world. Anyway, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world because he stood up for Orthodox Christian faith in the face of very strong and strident heresy. And he would not back down. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, many characterize Athanasius, many today characterize Athanasius as a universalist. A universalist, excuse me. That he thought everybody would be saved. Well, that's not exactly true. What Athanasius said in so many words in his writings is that his hope would be that all would be saved. His hope, not his belief. This is a, a, this is, this is a, this is a tough dude who was willing to take on the whole world, but had this preacher's heart for the unsaved and wanted them, if it was possible, by, the, by God's decree to be saved. But he said, he qualifies this, it says, for the ungrateful and disobedient, there is no hope. You can't be a universalist if you say there's no hope. 
for those that are disobedient to God and ungrateful for the sacrifice that our Lord has made. He says there is no hope, only the last fire. So why was Athanasius against the world? Why do, we, why do they say this? Here's a little background on him if you're, if you're unfamiliar because this is a, this is a, a very interesting uh, figure, very formative in our church history that's a bit difficult to understand. Um, you know, uh, not everybody wants to read a history book and certainly there are even less people that want to read the writings of these, um, these uh, pre-Nicene uh, or in his case, um, yes, pre-Nicaea. Well, he's, he's around at the time of Nicaea. He, in fact, he was at the Council of Nicaea. But these church fathers, not everybody wants to read these. Five times he's exiled. He gets in so much trouble, he's booted out of the empire. He's booted out of the places he lives. But he taught his students these things, which I think are really marvelous, that bear repeating and thinking about. He taught his servants be self-restrained. Here's a guy who's <laughs> against the whole world, but he's saying, be self-restrained. So he wasn't going out picking a fight. He wasn't looking for fights, but he stood up for his Lord and Savior when people attacked his Lord and Savior. He did not back down. He forgot about the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. He wasn't nice when it, when it came to those that were trying to destroy the faith. We face a little bit of that in this day and age, don't we? But, but, but I don't think we can we really imagine to the extent Athanasius and the men like him, the faithful men like him, how much they faith, faced, how, how important it was they stood up to it because there were, there were despicable heresies that were taking over the early church. Denial of, of Christ as, as the eternally begotten son. You know, heresies that said he was a created being, just like the people who visit your door on Saturday mornings say. So, also, in temptations endure, in labors persevere, when insulted be patient, when robbed make light of it, and despise even death for the cause of Christ. There is nothing greater than the cause of Christ. And basically Athanasius is saying, we despise it, we laugh at it. Death is meaningless to the Christian who understands his or her faith. And I think with that, we will end. Any any final questions or comments that anybody would like to make? We move slowly, but I wanted to kind of draw you people, draw everybody into the conversation. I think it's helpful for us to remember when we're talking about it with one another, rather than just listening to me talk. Because as you know, I can stand up here and talk all by myself for the longest time. So I do appreciate your uh, participation. Um, it, it's, I, it's, it's fun, basically. So uh, let's, let's pray, and then we will break for about an 11-minute break before the 11 a.m. service.
Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this day. We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for these men that we've talked about, like, like Athanasius, our brother, who's gone before us, Father. Let, that, that, that they may be examples to us, but that we may look beyond men to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for our example, that he be the one that we model our lives after. But we look at these men as how they modeled their lives after Christ to see that it is possible, that it can be done, and that our triune God gives us that ability to do that. Father, bless the preaching that is to come, bless the 11 a.m. worship service. Father, I, I ask for blessings and protection upon those who are traveling here for our 11 a.m. hour. Father, I give thanks for the brothers and sisters who are faithful and were here this morning, Father. Um, may they be blessed through the remainder of the week. And we ask for blessings and guidance on Pastor Mike as he brings our worship. Uh, music forward and on Pastor Steve as he preaches the word. And we also give thanks for our nursery workers, for our ladies who are taking care of our children, how important that is, the things that go on behind the scenes, the, the, the teachings they give and the care they give to our little ones, how important it is for those youngsters as they grow into maturity as followers of Christ. And we give thanks. All these things in Jesus' name, we pray to the praise and glory of the Father. Amen.